Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everybody. It is good to be back with you today. Today, we pick up in the book of Mark. We've been on and off in the Gospel of Mark for the past two years, and we have the next 10 weeks until we finish this Gospel and then head into Christmas. We want to continue this practice that we began during our last series, standing for the reading of God's Word as a way to honor and respect the Word of God. So Olivia Hayes is going to read our passage for us today, and then she'll finish by saying, this is the Word of the Lord, and we'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. From the book of Mark, chapter 12. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, again, it is good to be back with you after being gone this summer. My family was on an extended rest and a time of sabbatical, and we thank you again for that gift. And so I got back to the office, and I'm so thankful to Steve. I said, hey, man, on my first Sunday back, I would love to talk about death, resurrection, angels, demons, heaven, and marriage in heaven. And he was cool with it. So here here we go. Here we go. As we study the book of Mark, if you're following along in your notes, we're going to hit our notes right away. We are spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Right? I mean, our, our vision here is to see people of every generation giving themselves fully to the way of Jesus and his mission. The only way we know what his way is, is by spending time with him. So we're back in the gospel of Mark. And there's just something that happens when we spend time with Jesus. He changes us from the inside out. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning, if you haven't already, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. It's in the New Testament, second book of the New Testament. It's about three-fourths of the way back in your Bible. We'll be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And Mark chapter 12 can be found on page 824 of those Bibles, 824. We say this every week, but we so mean this. If you do not own a Bible, please take a Bible home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. And I love it when we talk to our staff that prepares this room and cleans this room that every week there's Bibles that are missing. So it's great. People are taking Bibles. So Mark chapter 12. 
Before we get to the story we're going to look at today, I want to bring us all up to speed with a little background on the gospel of Mark, because it's been a little while since we've been here. Would you read with me the first verse of the first chapter in the gospel of Mark? You can read it on the screen. Would you read it with me? Full voice, church. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. If you're following in your notes, the gospel means good news. The word gospel means good news. So this book, this entire book, is a book about the good news of Jesus and the salvation, the healing, and the freedom that he brings. This New Testament book, this gospel, this good news, it was the first gospel written of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was the first gospel written by a man named John Mark. That's how it got its name. He was a traveling companion of Peter who was the leader of Jesus' disciples. So Mark and Peter would travel around the Roman world and Peter would tell Mark stories of Jesus and Mark would write them down. We, it is believed this is written about 30 years after the death of Jesus. So eyewitness accounts, people saw this happen, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was written to the church in Rome in Italy. And this is very obvious. I'm a master of the obvious, but the church in Rome was part of the Roman Empire, And in the Roman Empire, you worshiped Caesar, the emperor who was referred to as the son of God. So in this one opening verse, introducing this gospel, Mark is stating that Caesar is not the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And he's telling these people in Rome, this gathered church, that Jesus is the king and he is worth living and dying for. Now, we've made our way through 11 chapters of Mark and to bring us up to speed of where we are in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the last time. He's entered Jerusalem for the last time. He did that on a Sunday. We are now on Tuesday. The story we're looking at takes place on Tuesday. Jesus will have the last supper with his disciples on Thursday. He'll be killed on Friday and rise from the dead three days later. That's where we are in the story. And this story also takes place in a section of Mark chapter 11 and 12, where religious leaders keep coming to Jesus to challenge his authority. They want to trap him with their questions in an effort to have him punished by death. So this is where we pick up with another question, this time by a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. So we read, beginning in verse 18, you can follow along in your Bibles or you can see this on the screen. Our story begins with these words. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So let's stop there for just a second. We we need to know who these characters are. The Sadducees were a powerful group of religious leaders who controlled the priesthood. They were wealthy aristocrats and with significant political power and temple influence. These are the people, these are the guys who oversaw the trading at the temple. Now, if you remember in chapter 11, Jesus just had an encounter with them where he rebuked them and flipped over the tables and cleared out the temple. So he's already at odds with them for doing that on Monday. It's now Tuesday. 
The Sadducees, and we need to know this. This is super important. The Sadducees based their entire faith only off the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're commonly called the books of Moses. One vital thing we need to know about this truncated view of scripture. This is most important for our story today. The Sadducees in those five books, they found no reference to angels, demons, or the resurrection or life after death. So they rejected those ideas. If you're following in your notes, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. That is why they are sad, you see. I worked on that all summer, all summer. Thank you for a little bit. Thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. They didn't believe in the resurrection. You lived, you died, that's it. Game over, you just cease to exist. So these Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection, right? So this alerts us that this is another trap being set for Jesus. Here's the question they ask. Beginning in verse 19, you can follow along in your Bibles. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So remember, the Sadducees based their faith off the first five books of the Bible. And what they're referencing is a verse out of Deuteronomy, which is in those five books, Deuteronomy 25, verses five to 10, where Moses gave instruction that allowed a brother to marry the wife of his deceased brother and have children with her. I know this might sound a little bit odd to us, but during this time, if your husband died, you could potentially be left destitute and subject to abuse or forced labor. And God's concern here with this provision was to protect the woman and protect the name of the family and the inheritance of the family. So the Sadducees take this instruction found in Deuteronomy and they come up with an absurd scenario to show the foolishness of believing a future resurrection. I mean, what they're trying to do is by posing this scenario, the Sadducees are trying to demonstrate all the problems that would arise if there was a physical resurrection. And they're saying, we're proving to you, Jesus, there's no life after death. This would be so messed up. There's no way this would happen. So the question is, at the resurrection, which they don't believe in, who will be married to who? And let's read Jesus' response. Would you read this with me in the first gray box on your notes? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. First, this is a slap in the face of the Sadducees. These are the religious leaders who are in error, 
which means to go astray or go off course. And he says, you don't know what you're doing because you don't know the word of God and you don't know the power of God. Other than that, you're doing good. I mean, and if we put ourselves in the Sadducee's shoes, it's like if you're a teacher, right? And somebody comes into your classroom and they say, yeah, you don't really know what you're doing with teaching. Although that actually does happen. Um, Coaches, you don't really know what you're doing with coaching. Uh, Engineer, you know, you're doing that bridge. You don't really know what you're doing. Let Let me point that out to you. They are offended in this situation. And the reason they don't know the word of God or the power of God, because they don't believe in life after death. Notice how Jesus begins. If you're following in your notes, not if the dead rise, but when they rise. Not if, but when. So let's talk about heaven for a couple of minutes. Right, when we think about heaven, We need to think in terms, if you're following in your notes, of continuity and transformation, right? Continuity and transformation. Some things will be very familiar. Some things will be completely different. First, continuity. I believe the new heavens and the new earth are going to be more familiar to us than we might think. We don't lose our memories We don't lose who we are. In Revelation chapter six, we get a glimpse of heaven and that there are people there who have died for the faith called martyrs. And we're told that they are wearing white robes. Their bodies are clothed. They speak. They're fully conscious. They have rational abilities. They are aware of each other. They're aware of God. They're aware of the situation on earth. They worship. They pray to God for justice. Those are all things we experience here and now. In addition, the fact that Jesus picked up his relationships right where they'd left off after his resurrection gives us a glimpse that we will experience continuity between our current lives and our resurrected lives with the same memories and relational histories. A pastor and author named Randy Alcorn wrote an exceptional book called Heaven. And in that book, he wrote this. This is a little bit longer quote, but it is so good. He says, receiving a glorified body doesn't erase history. It culminates it. Nothing will negate or minimize the fact that we were members of families on the old earth. We'll have family relationships with people who were blood family on earth, but we'll also have family relationships with our friends, both old and new. We can't take material things with us when we die, but we do take our friendships to heaven and one day they will be renewed. And then he concludes by saying this, the notion that relationships with family and friends will be lost in heaven, though common, is unbiblical. It denies the clear doctrine of continuity between this life and the next, and it suggests our earthly lives and relationships have no eternal consequence. If you're following in your notes, heaven will be more familiar to us than we might expect. It will be more familiar to us than we might expect, and that includes our memories. We will not be different people, but we will be the same people marvelously relocated and transformed, which is why we have to hold intention, continuity, and transformation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 52, the apostle Paul writes this, listen, I tell you, 
I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, they will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Listen, nobody knows exactly what this is going to be like. But in the verses we're looking at, Jesus says, we'll be like the angels. Listen, he doesn't say we become angels. He says we become like the angels. And I believe what he means here is that we will be like the angels in the fact that we will be immortal. We will not die again. We will be holy, without sin, set apart, and we will have perfect fellowship with God. And in Mark 12, 25, Jesus says we will become like angels and that we will not marry or be given in marriage. So if you're following in your notes, in heaven, there will be no marriage relationship as we know it now. There won't be marriage like we know it now. And that's because marriage was designed by God in this world to be a picture of the church as the bride of Christ. And when I use the word church, please know I'm talking about the people of God, followers of Jesus. It's not a building. Marriage is a picture of the bride of Christ. This is what we read about in Ephesians chapter five, verses 31 and 32, where the apostle Paul again writes, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Marriage here on this earth points to a greater reality, which is why heaven is described as a wedding feast. Earthly marriage is a shadow. It's a copy. It is a type of the ultimate marriage we read about in Revelation 9, 19, 21, and 22, the marriage of Christ to his entire church, his people. If you're following in your notes, marriage was designed by God in this world to be a picture of the church as the bride of Christ. It's a picture of the church, God's people as the bride of Christ. One of those verses in Revelation 19, verses six and seven and nine says this, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There won't be marriage in heaven because we don't need it to point us to Jesus because we'll have the real thing. We'll have the real thing. We will be with Jesus and there is one marriage in heaven, the marriage of Christ and his church. But if you're like me, then maybe you're thinking that disappoints me a little bit. That disappoints me because I want my marriage to Sarah to continue into heaven. And again, I appreciate Randy Alcorn's words here in his book, Heaven. You can see these on the screen. He says, my wife, Nancy, she's actually passed away now. My wife, Nancy, is my best friend and my closest sister in Christ. Will we become more distant in the new world? Of course not. 
We'll become closer. I'm convinced that the God who said it is not good for man to be alone is the giver and blesser of our relationships. I fully expect that no one besides God will understand me better on the new earth and there is nobody whose company I'll seek and enjoy more than Nancy's. He concludes by saying, Jesus said the institution of human marriage would end having fulfilled its purpose, but he never hinted that deep relationships between married people would end. It would be transformed. As someone who's married, I find that comforting, but I also need to remember that the best marriages here on earth are but a small taste of what heaven will be like when we are married to Jesus. And can I speak to single people for a moment? Right, man, I I know our culture and the church has made you feel less than those who are married. And I wanna offer a word of encouragement. You have incredible value and worth, and you represent the body of Christ just like married people represent the body of Christ. And for those of you who have not or cannot enter into marriage now, Scripture insists, man, listen to this. Scripture insists that singleness is not missing out on ultimate joy and meaning. It's not inferior to be single. It is not incompleteness to be single. And I don't say this patronizingly. I want this to be an encouragement because I know some who are single, it causes grief and heartache. I want you to know your identity is not anchored in your marital status now, but in your marital status in the age to come. That's your identity. You're not inferior. That's what matters most. Whether married or single, our culture and flesh scream to us. I buy into this. It it screams to us that ultimate joy has to be found now, now. But scripture is clear that for the people of God, heaven will be better in every possible way. Revelation chapter 21, verses three to four says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Yes, our bodies will be transformed. All pain and sorrow and death will be taken away. Broken relationships restored and we will enjoy those relationships without the presence of sin. But, but if you're falling on your notes, the greatest joy will be dwelling with God. That is the greatest joy physically in his presence. And I need to remember this, that living in the presence of Jesus is better than anything else. Yes, I long to be with Sarah. I long to be with my boys. I long to be with my daughters. I long to be with family members who have died. But more than any of that, I want to be able to say that if I could have heaven with all the people I love, but Jesus isn't there, then I don't want it. I need to be reminded that he is our greatest joy and it will be better than anything we can imagine right here, right now. And then Jesus finishes this conversation with the Sadducees in verses 26 and 27. I'll read 26, I'll invite you to read 27. Jesus says, now about the dead rising. 
just keeps going on this resurrection. Have you not read in the book of Moses and the account of the burning bush, how God said to him? And then would you read this with me? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus is brilliant here. He uses a portion of scripture that the Sadducees did accept. Remember the first five books to show them that they even misunderstand the portion of scripture they accept. For the Sadducees, Moses was a great person, maybe no greater person than Moses in the Bible. Moses was a shepherd chosen by God to be a prophet and the leader of God's people to bring his people out of slavery into the promised land. And what Jesus is referring to here is an encounter that Moses had with a burning bush that we read about in Exodus chapter three, one of the first five books. Moses goes over to look at this bush that is on fire and it's not burning up. And this is what he hears coming from the bush. It says, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And this is what I want us to pay attention to in that scripture from Exodus. English teachers in the room, you're going to love this. Notice, if you're following in your notes, God says, I am, not I was. I am, not I was. He speaks in the present tense. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Those are the names of Moses' ancestors who followed the one true God. They're called the patriarchs, the foundations of our faith. And here's what Jesus is saying. If death ended their existence, God would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's use of the present tense implies they live on to worship him. Therefore, how can there not be resurrection? And to emphasize the point, Jesus finishes by saying he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you may just want to circle that and write this in your notes. That phrase shows up 42 times throughout scripture. 42 times, God of the living, God of the living, I am the living God. It's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And he says, once again, you are badly mistaken. Same word as error. You've gone off course. You've gone astray. You don't know the word of God or the power of God. And then the story ends and the Sadducees are left speechless because they have no response. What an encounter. (laughs) What an encounter. But the question remains, what does this teach us about living in the way of Jesus? Why is this section of scripture about resurrection and marriage in heaven so important? I want to suggest there are two applications. I'm sure there are more, but I want to talk about two. First, if you're following in your notes, this section of scripture provides us with hope for the future. Hope for the future. The main point of this text is not marriage in heaven. The main point is that God is the God of the living. And Jesus is affirming for those listening that there will be a resurrection. That one day everything will be made new. We were made for the Garden of Eden. 
We were made for the Garden of Eden. We were created for a perfect relationship with God, one another, and the earth, but all that has been torn apart by sin, and life is full of disappointment, and we're aware of the gap between what we were made for and what we actually experience. We feel that in our bodies. We're aware of the gap. Maybe you struggle that your body is not what you wish it was. There's sickness or pain. You know, maybe you struggle that your mind is not what you wish it was, either mental health or dementia. Maybe your family's not what you wish it was. Your marriage is not what you wish it was. Your job is not what you wish it was. We can have hope in the present because one day the gap between what should be and what will be is finally closed. And we will live in a world that is finally as it should be in the presence of Jesus at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Listen, friends, I've done enough funerals to definitively tell you that Jesus is our only hope for the future. I have sat with families who do not follow Jesus and there is no relief from their pain. They grieve without hope because to them, this world is as good as it gets and then you die. At almost every funeral I do, I share a scripture found in the gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. In a conversation Jesus had with a woman named Martha, whose brother Lazarus had just died, Jesus says this to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is the only one who provides us hope for the future. And so I want to ask you, everybody here today, everybody watching online today, do you believe this? I mean, do you believe this? Like, are you ready for the moment you leave this world and you meet Jesus? Because there is a day coming for all of us when we stand in front of him and we will be judged and eternity hangs in the balance. Whether you spend eternity in the presence of Jesus at the wedding feast of the lamb or separation from him in hell depends on the decision you make about Jesus in the present. And I just want to say to you, today can be the day you acknowledge your inability to save yourself and place your full confidence in Christ, that he is the son of God, the Lord, and the king of your life, and you rearrange your life to follow him. If you're sensing you need to make that decision because you don't have that hope for a future, don't miss the opportunity today to do that. I've been praying for you this week that today would be the day that you would follow Jesus but it's not just hope for the future. The second application I want us to see is that the resurrection provides us, if you're following in your notes, power for daily living. Power for daily living. Eternal life. I don't know if you know this or not, but eternal life doesn't begin when we die. It begins when we make the decision to follow Jesus. The gospel of John chapter 17, three says this, you can see it on the screen. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So when we become followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus lives inside of us. Did you know in the book of Romans, Chapter eight, we're told the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside every Christ follower. 
Did you know that? Like, can I just say that again? And can we all be awed at that a little bit? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we're a people of the resurrection now. We have been buried and raised to new life in Christ. And now the power of sin has been defeated in our lives. Listen, we're going to sin every day the rest of our lives. But we can fight it and say no to temptation and no to sin. And we can find hope and joy even in difficult circumstances. We can love those who are difficult to love. We can experience peace when we're dealing with anxiety and depression. The resurrection doesn't start when we die. It provides us with power for daily living. I was listening to a message last week and a pastor named Rich Velotis from Queens, New York gave this definition of the gospel and it hit me in a powerful way. And I thought, yes, this is what gives us hope for the future and power for daily living. And as we begin Mark's gospel again, I thought this was a great way to close, to end the way we begin talking about the gospel, the good news. This is the quote that I heard and it just stopped me in my tracks. Rich Velotis says, the gospel is the good news that in God's kingdom, that God's kingdom has come near in Jesus Christ and through his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. Amen? They no longer have the last word. We always want to provide a time of response to the word of God because we believe the word of God is living and active and cuts us to our core. And so before we take communion today, I want you to reflect on this question if you're following in your notes. Where do you need to be reminded of the good news? Where is it? All of us need it. The good news isn't just for people who don't yet follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus need the good news. Maybe you need to be reminded about hope for the future. Or maybe you need to be reminded about power for daily living. Where do you need to be reminded that you're a person of the resurrection? Where do you need to be reminded about the word and the power of Jesus in your life? So just take this moment and reflect on what God is saying to you. That's the Holy Spirit speaking. What is God saying to you through his word today that he wants you to know? with this false illusion, this false sense that we're in control, 
that we know best, that we can run our own little kingdom. And we need to be reminded that you are the son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that you are the only one who provides us hope for the future and power for daily living. So God, would you meet us where we are? Would you come near? Would you remind us what it is we need to be reminded about the good news? And I pray specifically, God, if there's somebody who walked in this room who does not know you and they do not have your hope for the future, that today would be the day that they would accept that. God will rejoice with you in that decision. God, come near to us. Remind us who you are and who we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everybody agreed and said, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.